Hello church family, this is Pastor Keith Sanders and today we have lecture two in our systematic theology class and today's lesson has to do with the attributes of God and if we have time we're going to touch on the concept of the Trinity as well. We also will be joined later by a special guest, Dr. Bart Barber, and you'll look forward to that. Before we start today's lecture, I want to review a little bit uh, last week's lecture. We talked about the biblical concept of revelation which is how we know anything about God. And I want to remind us of that truth over and over. The reason we can talk about theology, the reason that we have any idea about what God is like, is that he has chosen in his graciousness and in his sovereignty to reveal those things to us. We said last week that he's done that in two ways. One, through nature, or what we call general revelation. And the other is through his special revelation, primarily through the Holy Bible. And so our curriculum throughout this study will be the Bible, and so you'll need a Bible in front of you. Also, don't forget that there's a study guide that comes out with the lesson every week, and if you'll print that out, you'll have that in front of you, and it'll help you take notes and things you can refer back to at a later time. So let's jump right into today's lecture, and it really is on what we call theology proper. You'll remember that the word theology is uh, made up of two words, theos and logos, which means uh, a word about God. And that's what theology is. It's studying what the Bible has to say about God. When we talk about theology proper, we're talking about a concept known as the Godhead. And we'll, from there, jump into the doctrine of Trinity. Uh, There are several divisions of theology under the Godhead. There is uh, paterology, which is a study of God as Father, And there's Christology, the study of God the Son, and pneumatology is God the Holy Spirit. But the main thing to understand now is that all three members of the Trinity have all of the attributes of God. And so I think we'll start there with the idea of attributes, which are the characteristic traits of God. I think this is so important to establish a foundation of what we believe about what God is like. And when I became the pastor here nearly 15 years ago, I felt that was so important that I spent the first 10 weeks in the pulpit of Sundays as pastor studying with you the attributes of God. And so really we can divide the attributes of God into two broad categories, and those are incommunicable and communicable. Um, Incommunicable meaning God doesn't share those attributes with us. Those are distinct and we can only say those things about God. Uh, His communicable um, attributes are those he shares with us and that he wants us to grow in. And really the process of sanctification is our maturing or growing into um, the image of Christ. Of course, Christ being the the second person of the Trinity, these are uh, the attributes of God. Um, But first, let's establish what the Bible has to say about the nature of God And that's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which is called the Shema. And it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. So one of the first things God has revealed to us about himself through the word is that he is one. He's not many gods. He is one God. Now, that is an important concept as we'll talk about the Trinity in, in just a moment. But to believe that there is only one God makes a person monotheistic. The root word mono meaning one. There are three 
major religions in the world in the world that are monotheistic. They believe in one God only, and those are Judaism, obviously, and there is uh, Islam, and then there's Christianity, and a good portion of the world's population was self-identified one of those three categories. Now, to be monotheistic does not make you a Christian. It just makes you monotheistic. You believe in, in one God. And so to be a Christian, you have to believe in the God of the Bible, and you have to believe in his son, Jesus. And so uh, keep that in mind. Now, let's talk a little bit, first of all, about his incommunicable attributes, uh, those attributes that he shares with no one. These are the things that make God, God. First of all, the scriptures tell us that he is omniscient. Now, the root word phrase omni means all or all-encompassing. And to say that God is omniscient, it means that he knows everything at once. That is, he has perfect knowledge. Uh, the Bible says that he knows the number of hairs on our head. And uh, specifically, Psalm 139.4 is a verse you'll want to read on your own. It says, even before there is a word on my tongue, O Lord, you know it all. Especially that last phrase, Lord, you know it all. Uh, we, we sometimes call a know-it-all person someone who thinks they know, know it all, and they speak as if they know it all, but God is the only entity in the universe who that's actually true of. He knows everything, and the theological term for that is his omniscience. Of course, because Jesus is God, Many places in the New Testament, we say that he's also omniscient, that he was never taken by surprise. I often say that when you read the New Testament, Jesus would ask questions of his disciples. Jesus never asked a question for information. He asked questions to teach lessons. He was not surprised even of his own arrest, as we've been studying through the Gospel of Luke. He said exactly what was going to happen. He would go to Jerusalem. He would be arrested. Uh, he would be turned over to the Gentiles and he would die. And so Jesus, even though he emptied himself, we saw last week in Philippians chapter 2 in the kenosis passage, he never ceased to be God and in the flesh he was omniscient. The scripture also says of God that he's omnipresent, which means he's everywhere at once. There's nowhere in the universe that we could go to escape God. Uh, we find it humorous in the book of Genesis when Adam and Eve broke God's prohibition against eating of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. The scripture says they hid themselves from God. Well, it was a futile effort, of course, because God is everywhere. A classic text on this is Psalm 139, uh, verse 7, which says, Oh, where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, which means hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold on me. I'm reminded of the prophet Jonah who thought he could run from God and he got on a ship that was headed the exact opposite direction of where God told him to go to the city of Nineveh. And uh, of course, there was a storm and they threw Jonah in the ocean, God had prepared a fish. So even in the belly of a fish at the bottom of the sea, God was there, wasn't he? And so 
Just remember that. Omnipresence means God is everywhere. And then there's a term on your outline there called omnipotence. Uh, it means God is all-powerful. Jeremiah 32, 17 says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. That is an expression of the omnipotence of God. Now, there's always going to be a smart aleck in every systematic theology class that asks the question, if that's true, could God create an elephant that's too heavy for him to lift over his head? And of course, uh, when we speak of God's omnipotence, we're not talking about silly things like that. We are saying that God is capable of fulfilling everything that is in his nature to do. So theoretically, could, could God um, do something that's against his nature? Well, theoretically only, because God is never going to do anything against his nature. By definition, everything that God does is good. And so when we say he's omnipotent, we're saying that he is powerful enough to accomplish all of his purposes, whatever is within his nature to do. All right, so uh, you can probably think of many, many other uh, attributes and, and characteristics of God. I'm not going to go into great detail. I'll cover briefly a couple more. Uh, one that we talk about here quite a bit is his sovereignty, which uh, is a term of nobility. It means that God rules and reigns as sovereign and king over all things he has created, which is everything. Uh, again, from Philippians chapter 2, speaking of Christ, one day the scripture says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess of things in heaven. I take that to be angelic beings of things of earth. I take that to be humanity and things under the earth. I take that to be even Satan and the demons one day are going to bow their knee to the lordship and recognize the sovereignty of God. Now then, another characteristic of God is that he is, is unchangeable. Uh, he is immutable is the way theologians often say it. Uh, James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so God is different than us in that we, as we saw from the sermon last week, like the crowd in Jerusalem on Holy Week, are fickle. They went from saying, make Jesus king to crucify him in just a matter of four or five days. And so God is not like that. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Revelation 1.8 says he is eternal, which is another attribute of God. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, who is and was and who is to come the Almighty. Everything else in the universe has a beginning and an ending, not God. He has no beginning and he has no ending. Now again, you could think of some other attributes of God, but I want to move on now and talk about those attributes that he is uh, willing to share with us. And you may have a different list and you may disagree with my list, and that's okay too. Um, first of all, let's talk about God in terms of his holiness. Holiness. In Isaiah chapter 6, you may want to open your Bible. This is a little longer passage. You remember that the pro prophet Isaiah had a vision. He said in the year that King Uzziah died, and it was a vision of God sitting in his throne room, and uh, it was in the temple, and his robe filled the temple. So let's just read Isaiah chapter 6, 1 through 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. 
seraphim, and those are angels, stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And the one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so to declare God holy three times, a couple of implications there. He might have been talking about the Trinity. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are are all holy. They share that attribute. Uh, But likely it's just repetition for emphasis sake. This is such an important quality of God that it bears repeating over and again. He is holy. Now, what does that mean? Well, first it means he's different than humanity because we are not holy. And yet the Bible says we are to be holy because God is holy. Now that's a problem because Romans 3.23 says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so if holy is distinctive and, and, and sinless perfection, how can we ever hope to be holy? Well, only through a concept that we'll study later on under the doctrine of salvation, which is imputed righteousness. That is, God has to grant to us his holiness, and we know that is the only way any of us are going to spend eternity with him in heaven, because God is not going to spend eternity with unholy people. And so he does communicate that attribute to us uh, through salvation. Now, that doesn't mean that after we're saved, we never sin again. It means that ultimately our sin problem is dealt with uh, at the cross by Jesus and Part of what it means to be born again is that our sins are forgiven and the Lord will never bring those sins up against us again because he communicates to us the righteousness of Christ. Now, a second thing we could say about God is that he's he's loving, isn't he? God is a loving God. Sometimes people think of God as uh, sitting in heaven and gleefully causing pain and destruction in the world. The Bible says of God that, first of all, he is love. And then, of course, the greatest expression of his love is is sending Jesus into the world. John 3, 16, every child is memorized. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that that whoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And so when we talk about these communicable attributes of God, he wants us to manifest those attributes in, in our life. And so when he says, be holy, I take that to be practical holiness. We should be growing more like Christ all the time. Our speech should be sanctified more and more all the time. Our thought life, certainly our actions. We ought to be expressing Christ-like love more and more as we grow into Christian maturity. In fact, the scripture says the way a lost and dying world recognizes Christians is our love one for another. And so uh, these are are some of those attributes of God. Let's just talk about a couple more. Uh, Last week in the sermon, we talked about how Christ is merciful. Even as he was entering Jerusalem, knowing that in just 30 or 40 years, the city of Jerusalem was going to be judged by God and totally devastated, he wept over that truth. Scripture talks about Jesus looking over the city of Jerusalem and and being heartbroken for the lostness and their rejection. And, And he's merciful, isn't he? Uh, He's merciful to us. The only way any of us ever sin and draw our next breath is that he's merciful. Every breath we take, every beat of our heart is a manifestation of God's mercy. And so if Christ is merciful to us, then his expectation is that we are merciful to other people. He's gracious, isn't he? He is full of grace towards us, 
fact, our salvation is based on that fact. Salvation is by grace through faith. And so we need to be merciful, gracious, loving uh, towards other people. And to the degree that we are expressing growth in those areas, is the degree, the degree to which we are making progress in sanctification. And so we see all of these uh, attributes um, all the time in the scriptures. One of the things when you're reading your Bible, uh, hopefully systematically, hopefully all of you have a program of reading. If you don't, there's a number of those reading programs available here at the church. Uh, Brother Gatewood does a great job providing those for us. You need to get on a regular diet of, of taking in the scripture. But as you're reading the Bible... Ask yourself some diagnostic questions of whatever text you read. And one of the questions you need to ask, particularly as you become more versed in systematic theology, is, is what is the theological concept that is being described in this setting? Now, now we know the Bible is divided into various genres. There's poetry, there's historical narrative, but all of it is God's story. And ultimately, Jesus is the hero about it, and so when we ask those questions, we need to ask ourselves, what does this text tell me about God, his nature, his attributes, his eternal plans? And get in the habit of reading your Bible with a pen in hand in a, in a notebook and write down those thoughts as they come to you. And what you'll find out the more you study the Bible is that even though the Bible was written by dozens of individuals over hundreds of years, thematically, it is consistent from Genesis to Revelation. And one of the great themes of the Bible is God's sovereignty, which is one of the attributes that we just read. Um, oftentimes, people will ask me between Sundays, what's the theme of your sermon? And 90% uh, of the time, I will respond, it's the sovereignty of God, because that really is the overriding and overarching theme of the Bible. Now, let's uh, jump into some deep weeds theologically uh, I know that uh, the study of the concept of the Trinity is one that a lot of people are a little intimidated by. It's hard to understand. In fact, it gives us a theological headache. I have a friend who often tells his congregation that he serves that some things are worth getting a theological headache over. And the concept of Trinity is uh, one of those that, that fall into that category. Now, when we talk about the Trinity, we are attempting to describe the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And it is historically a controversial doctrine for a couple of reasons. One is the word Trinity is not in the Bible, uh, but the concept of the Trinity is throughout, throughout the Bible. And we'll talk about some of the places that we find that next week. Um, I'm going to uh, just cover the highlights uh, there are basically three truths that any Christian needs to know about the Trinity. But before we give you those three truths, let me say the most important thing about studying the Trinity is the most important thing about studying theology at all, which is we need to enter into it with great humility. We are all in process of, of learning. Now, others have... Uh, gone further down the road in studying this and understanding it, and some are just beginning. And so we all need to be kind and merciful, and we need humility as, as we study uh, these deep doctrines because they are difficult to understand. We need to also be prayerful that the Lord would open our mind, that we would be able to understand. The Apostle Paul prayed for the church of Ephesus that God would enlighten their eyes, that is, that they would turn the lights on that we could see, not for the sake of 
winning a contest or debating people, but so that we would have a deeper appreciation for who God is and, and what he's like. And so here are the three things that, that every Christian needs to understand about the concept of the Trinity. Trinity. Number one is there is one God. We started out with that. Deuteronomy uh, 6 makes that so clear. We're not talking about many gods. Uh, if monotheism is a belief in one God, polytheism is the belief in many gods. And you know that historically, the Greeks, the Romans, and really most of the empires of the world were practitioners of polytheism. But we are saying there is one God. But secondly, we're saying that he has revealed himself in three distinct persons. And those persons, of course, are God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But here's the most important thing to understand about the Trinity, that each person of the Trinity is fully God. That is, there are, there's no ranking or hierarchy. There, there, there's, we tend to think of, I, I think, unfortunately, God the Father uh, as the major leagues, and then God the, Father, God the Son as um, sort of minor league, and, and then God the Spirit even further down. And don't think that way. Uh, each member of the Trinity is fully God and shares completely in all the attributes of God. Now, they have different roles, to be sure, and we'll talk about those roles next week, but each one is fully God. Now, um, I said that the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but the concept of the Trinity uh, certainly is. And so um, if you'd like, if any of you have a copy of Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, you can be reading ahead, and I think it will be helpful to you. Um, through the years, people have tried to describe the Trinity with various diagrams graphically. They've tried to describe um, the Trinity through various metaphors. Probably the most famous one is a chicken's egg, that you have a shell, you have a yolk, and uh, you have the albumen, uh, the white part of the egg. But uh, that metaphor, as all metaphors, falls apart. Um, I think it's best not to try to use a metaphor to describe God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit's relationship, because there's nothing like it. And that, by definition of what a metaphor is, it's we're trying to describe similarities. And by the way, God is so gracious, isn't he, to allow us to use our limited vocabulary to describe something that is transcendent. Uh, by the way, we call that in uh, theology, anthropomorphism. It's the idea that God allows us to use human traits to describe him, even though the Bible says he's not man, he is spirit. And so there are verses that say things like, the arm of the Lord is not shortened that he cannot save, or the ear of the Lord is not dull that he can't hear. We're not saying that God has a body and an arm and ears like us. Uh, we're just um, noting the fact that, that we have a limited vocabulary and the Lord graciously allows us to describe him in ways that we understand. And so that's what we're going to be doing next week is trying to describe the concept of the Trinity using our limited vocabulary um, in a way that we can comprehend so that we can appreciate him for he, who he is and truthfully describe him to those who don't know him. Well, joining me right now is our special guest. Uh, this is Dr. Bart Barber. Dr. Bart Barber is the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Farmersville, Texas, and has been for the past 20 years. Uh, welcome, Dr. Barber. Thank you. It's good to be here. 
Well, Dr. Barber, you are a pastor, of course, but you're also a church historian by trade. I'm interested in how theology and church history intersect, specifically there in the context of the local church. What is the relationship between systematic theology and church history? Well, I think that uh, the study of church history uh, is important because the pursuit of systematic theology is imperfect. Uh, I think that God reveals truth to us in Scripture, uh, and uh, church history reveals error to us uh, in a lot of ways. I know that sounds kind of strange, but uh, um, you know, I think about um, what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2 uh, about a slightly different subject when he talked about how uh, he didn't want to be deceived by the Satan because he's not ignorant of his schemes. And um, what we have in church history is the record of a number of occasions where people got the task of systematic theology right, but also a number of occasions where people got the task of systematic theology wrong. And the study of church history helps you quickly without having to go through 40 years of experimentation and discovery to to see the beginning of a path that others have trodden before that turned out to be a theological dead end. But it wasn't necessarily obvious to them at the beginning, oh, here's where this leads, and this is why this is bad. Uh, but through church history, we can have the benefit of other people's mistakes and other people's triumphs over those mistakes. Uh, to be able to recognize ways that systematic theology can go wrong, ways that people can develop bad theology through their systematic efforts, and then we can avoid those ourselves. So um, so I, I think it just helps prevent our making a lot of mistakes while we're trying to be theologians. Well, I'd like you to go back and help us a little bit with the history of, of this doctrine of the Trinity. I mentioned to our people that that word is not in the Bible how was that doctrine developed, and why is it so important? So what I would say is, uh, I think our understanding of the Trinity developed uh, largely by response to erroneous ideas about the nature of God that unfolded over the course of history. Um, although the word Trinity is not contained in the Scriptures, uh, one of the things that I like to say as a pastor when people ask that question is, you put any name that you want to on what the Bible says about the nature right. of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and as long as it affirms what the Bible teaches, I'm happy with that. Call it supercalifragilisticexpialidocious <laughs> if you want, but uh, what we can't get away from is what the Bible does teach us about the nature of God. And um, over the course of the first three or four centuries of Christianity, um, the the biblical teaching about uh, what had been discovered about about Jesus with the advent of Jesus, uh, about the the interaction between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, uh, about their essential unity that Jesus could say, "I and the Father are one," uh, and also about the. Um, the, the the diversity of the persons within the Trinity that reveal themselves in Scripture, um, the that those ideas came face to face with uh, first of all uh, Hebrew conceptions about Jehovah uh, from the Old Testament from the Jewish people, and then ran smack along headlong into Greek philosophy 
uh, and uh, for for a couple of centuries, uh, people are trying to uh, people who have been raised in other ways of thinking try to grasp uh, the the depth of these bewildering and amazing ideas about uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and uh, and so people began to try to tweak that uh, in some ways that uh, that 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 emphasize some parts of what the Bible says to the detriment of other things that the Bible says. Uh, and so you begin to have a number of, um, of, of divergent views um, that, that, that usually have localized support um, among some Christians around some popular leader who decided, you know, you always have to watch out for that very popular leader who comes out with his own take on, on things that's different from uh, what... The rest of uh, of Christianity has believed. Well, so let me ask you this, Bart. Um, today, these misunderstandings about the doctrine of the Trinity still exist. They come up in every generation. They change names, but the basic tenets of these beliefs uh, stay the same. Let me ask you about uh, one called modalism, yeah. which uh, is still around today in, in some of denominations claiming to be orthodox. Uh, tell us what modalism is and how to watch out for it. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Uh, so modalism is, the, is an idea that emphasizes the oneness of God at the expense of the threeness of God. And, um, of course, you can't do that and read the New Testament because you have to deal with the historical aspect of, of Jesus. And so there's a guy named Sibelius who lived in the in the 200s uh, none of his writings survived but we have uh, the writings of people who disagreed with what he said uh, refuting what he had said and so we have pretty decent record of what he wrote in the record of what people wrote back to him and uh, Sibelius um, he um, he taught that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, were simply three, uh, it's like a three-act play for Sibelius, okay, that, that, that God, that, that the one God played one character for the first act, the, the God of creation, and then uh, he took off the God the Father mask of the Old Testament and then put on, the, or, or maybe instead of mask we say costume, it's like he's an actor in a play, he put on the God the Son costume uh, to be, the God of redemption through the actions of Jesus Christ uh, on the earth through his life and ministry and death. And um, then uh, after the ascension of Jesus to heaven, uh, then uh, he took off the Jesus costume, the God the Son costume, and put on the God the Holy Spirit costume, uh, arriving at Pentecost and becoming the God of sanctification and redemption uh, through the action of the Holy Spirit. And um, so that's slightly different from the modalism that we see today in, like, oneness Pentecostalism, uh, because for Sibelius, for that early kind of modalism, it was very much sequential in time. Um, But for a lot of the modalists today who still have that same core error of denying the distinction between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and just making these all 
modes of operation or manifestations of one God. Um, but but a lot of times what you'll encounter today, like in oneness Pentecostalism, it's not sequential. It's as though God keeps these costumes in a closet and, and pulls out one and puts the other on uh, as as he wishes, even still today. So uh, so that that hardbound time sequence is lost. But the basic idea that there are not three persons in God uh, is what holds in common this idea of modalism. Um, soundly rejected immediately, as soon as it emerged, it was soundly rejected and continues to be rejected today. Well, I know that your church is working in West Africa and has been for about 10 years. How do you teach the concept of the Trinity, particularly in a cultural context that is uh, predominantly Muslim mixed in with some animism? Well, amazingly enough, and this may be a different answer from the one that you're thinking about, most of what we've had to do there is affirm the Trinity and affirm it strongly in order to gain a hearing. That's because the particular region of Senegal that we visit has had a strong Catholic influence over the course of the past few centuries because of the French influence in that area of Africa. And so uh, the... uh, um, the very first time we got there, uh, the chief of the village that we visited first uh, fell all over himself, welcoming us, telling us how thankful they are to have us there. And then mid-sentence stopped and said, now you're not Jehovah's Witnesses, are you? Because if you are, then you can just get up and leave right now because we don't have any interest in having any Jehovah's Witnesses around here. And um, so they have, a, they have about a two-millimeter veneer of Catholicism over about a two-mile-deep deposit of animism. And uh, in that African traditional religion, uh, they are um, like, some of the, like some of the Greeks were in the times of the New Testament. They're very open to the idea of adding on to their animism a Trinitarian God, a monotheistic God for Islam, uh, anything else, uh, just as long as it doesn't mess with their local spirits that they're performing all these rituals for that they that they genuinely believe in. So uh, I actually had to I had to find a doctrine uh, a document uh, produced by the Vatican about uh, Baptists and show that the Vatican itself had said that we affirm the Trinity. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's the only way that we ever got really a solid hearing there was once we were able to demonstrate for sure that we affirm the Trinity. Dr. Barber, last week we spent some time talking about the levels of theological agreement. Where would you personally place the Trinitarian theology? Would you say it's an essential doctrine, a secondary doctrine, or a tertiary doctrine? I believe that the doctrine of the Trinity is an essential doctrine. Uh, I believe that it's essential because um, the the very question of whom we are worshiping uh, is all caught up in the idea of the Trinity. Um, And when you look at the the early writings that produce the heresies uh, that that diverge from Trinitarianism, uh, that's that's very much um, at the heart of so many of them. Uh, the reason why um, 
for example, another another heresy, Arianism. Uh, the reason why Arius of Alexandria reacted against Sabellianism so strongly and wound up leading into another uh, error, which uh, an, an error that said that there was a time when God the Son did not exist, uh, that God the Father was the only eternal one. Um, his rationale for that was simply that uh, he believed that the worship that was due to the one that he regarded as truly being God, God the Father, uh, that that worship was being compromised because it was being spread out to others who were inferior to the to the created Logos, the God the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. And so uh, even, even those who promote deviations from the Trinity, uh, if you trace them back to their origins, even they are saying that this is simply a question of who deserves our worship, who who should receive uh, our praise and our adulation, and, um, and and so that's that's of primary importance. If we can't agree whom we serve, whom we worship, then you have not just different ideas within Christianity; you have completely different religions uh, when you diverge on that point. So we believe that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and that they are one God in three persons. And, um, you know, you find out at the first page of the hymnal whether we're worshiping the same God or not, because we're able to sing right off the bat, holy, 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 uh, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. We're directing our worship to the triune God. And uh, people people who reject the Trinity will bow out of a song like that because they're not going to worship the triune God. Well, well, let's just name names. Uh, so you would not uh, put Jehovah's Witnesses in the category of Orthodox Christians, neither would you put Unitarians, for that matter. That is correct. Nor Oneness Pentecostals. Uh, right. now not, not all Pentecostal churches are Oneness Pentecostal churches. Uh, but... Um, but but even but but those that are part of the UPC that are modalistic, um, even even for them, I would I would say that these are not a part of Orthodox Christianity, and uh, certainly Mormonism uh, would be another example of a group that has rejected the Trinity in some novel and bizarre ways, uh, and on that grounds, uh, for them too, I would say this is this is not the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. And they're not worshiping the same God we're worshiping. And then finally, uh, Dr. Barber, we love uh, your church and appreciate what you're doing there. Um, How's everyone in your community doing through this COVID virus? And specifically, how can the members of our church be praying for you? I'm very, very thankful for God's faithfulness Uh, in difficult times. That's when it's revealed, is it not? And uh, so... Uh, we've certainly been seeing that. We've been learning some new ways to do ministry, and in some ways we've just been returning to some very old ways of doing ministry, too. And I'm thankful to say that God's blessing that so far. Well, thank you, Dr. Barber, for your time today. We want to uh, pray for you and uh, pray for one another. Let's close our class together in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us. And Lord, uh, 
we confess that uh, these theological concepts are deep, and yet we know they're important. Uh, they have been historically through the church for 2,000 years. They will be in the future. We never want to say anything that's not true about you. We never even want to have um, inappropriate thoughts about who you are. We know the essence of idolatry is believing and thinking wrong things about you. And so, Father, help us to grow in grace and grow in our understanding of all of these theological concepts, specifically your attributes, what you're like and who you are. And Father, next week as we dive deeper into the concept of the Trinity, would you open our minds and help us to gain understanding? We thank you for Dr. Barber joining us today. We thank you for his work and his church's work in Africa and also here in North Texas. We have your blessings and protection over them. And also for the members of our church, Lord, we continue to ask you to watch over and protect us from this virus and from all those things that would seek to harm us. We trust you. We love you. We pray you dismiss us now with your grace, and we pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen.